This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. This is Coach Jen from Ocala, Florida. And Tara Tibbetts from a very warm Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> and you are listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for August 19th, 2021. We are episode 2750. Good morning, Horse World. This is our very special monthly fox hunting episode. We come to you the third Thursday of every month. So if you are a fox hunting aficionado or you want to learn more about it, put the third Thursday on your calendar and come join us and learn all about it. And we are very proudly sponsored by the MFHA. And what does MFHA stand for? The Masters of Foxhound Association. Dun, dun, dun. That kind of gives us the official stamp of approval from my point of view. Absolutely. There <laughs> you go. And this is the part of the show each month, if you're not a regular listener, where I get to catch up on Tara's latest adventures because fox hunters frequently have adventures either with their home hunt or with a neighboring hunt where they go and visit because that's a common thing that fox hunters do. They're a very social group. So what have you been up to? Really mostly, uh, you know, we have had the most unbelievable summer up until about a week ago. Uh-oh. It's been like high 80s, low 90s, in the 60s in the morning. It's been tremendous. And so I've been riding a lot and trail riding with my fox hunting buddies. And then last weekend it decided it's Texas in August, so almost Texas in August. And so let's become 100 degrees and really humid and gross and disgusting. <laughs> It went from beautiful to horrible in one fell swoop. Yes. Yeah. I will say, though, as we're chatting, it's contemplating thunderstorming and raining. So I, I, I'm I, a child of eastern Montana. And if anyone is following the nationwide weather right now, it's been o- over 100 degrees in Mile City pretty consistently since the end of May. And maybe five and a half inches of rain since January. So they're really in a dire situation of wow. hot and dry. And I have family with ranches in that part of the world. And I feel like at least every week somebody's putting out a significant fire. So I wish I could send my rain up there. I just want to let everyone know that is in those parts of the world that we're thinking about them and understand how hard this is. So Yeah. Oof. Ouch. Yeah. 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 So you're lying yeah. low right now is what you're up to. Yeah, lying low, and we, we kind of chatted about this before recording that um, I had a masseuse, uh, masseuse uh, a massage person for horses come out and work on my horses, and it's funny because I had an animal communicator that um, talked to Coco, my show horse, uh, it's been about a year ago, and one of the things that came out of that was that Coco wanted a massage, and so I, you know, through COVID and all that, we kind of rescheduled a couple times, and I finally had her come out, and she worked on my horses, and Coco was fine. Like, she she's one of those horses that she wanted a she, massage but didn't need one. Is that what you're saying? Well, she's Coco <laughs> Chanel and everything that goes along with that. Yeah, <laughs> but she's just she's so purpose bred for her job, and she's built so perfectly for it. It's like it's painfully easy for her to jump. She's compact. She's 16 hands. She's got an amazing rear. Like, it's just stuff really isn't very hard for her. And Simon's a different story. We, my hunt horse, because he's, he's your typical, he's a 16, two hand thoroughbred and he's kind of long and the, the massage has turned out. And I, I guess I kind of knew this, but I kind of didn't like, and they always talk about this in the Kentucky performance products, um, ads on, on various podcasts that y'all have that, you know, there's the nervous warrior that that the horse that doesn't look anxious and doesn't act anxious and like isn't spooky or anything. That's 100% Simon. Oh, he keeps it all to himself. Yes. So he hasn't 
physically told me that he's uncomfortable. He doesn't say no to anything, but after the masseuse working on him some, you know, he's he's got some major tension in his back and so kind of a weird thing in part of his neck. And so we're we're working through ways to make him as comfortable as possible because he's only seven. And I kind of sort of basically give him summers off. We just mostly do trail rides and stuff. I don't really, I don't jump him at all in the summer. I don't ask him to do anything difficult. I don't ask him to collect or get on the bid or anything like that, which maybe I should. But so we have a lameness exam coming up this week where I just want my vet to kind of go over him and make sure that he doesn't need any injections anywhere, that there's not something that I'm kind of missing just to make sure. You know, when you have a horse that, is struggling with something, but you can't put your finger on it. But it's like, you know, things that sh- should be easier aren't. But the horse yes. isn't telling you that he's physically like, oh, no, can't do that. It hurts. I get that. I've gone through that same process with my horse where something's not quite right, but you can't put your finger yep. on it. And I've had a lot of um, what they call alternative therapies nowadays, a lot of... yes. Uh, acupuncture and laser therapy and stuff like that done on him in the past couple of months. And it has helped him a lot. Um, and she also, the same person, she's kind of got to know him now because she's worked on him for a couple of months. She recommended a few more traditional things that we did with him that also helped because she was able to like, oh, there, there, there's a problem right there. You need to have that x-rayed or ultrasounded or something like that to make sure that there's nothing going on in there. Because when I manipulate it chiropractically or give it treatment with acupuncture, I can anticipate this kind of a result. And the result we got wasn't what I anticipated. So there could be something going on in there that needs to be right. treated, for example, injections. Um, so that's it's actually been very useful to help get to know what's really going on in his body that he can't tell me. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... You know, I, I I have this like kind of, I don't know, like this kind of weird impending sense of dread that I like, I don't, I really don't want to get told like he is. And I don't think he does. And, and my, the, the body worker doesn't think, but I'm like, I don't want a bad kissing spine diagnosis or something like that. And I, it's just, there's this weird impending sense of dread. And I just kind of want to get over this like hump of the lameness exam and kind of get on the other side of it. And you know, if he needs time off or we need to do something, like, I'll do it for him for sure. He's he's just a wonderful horse, and he's he's so fun to ride. So hopefully it's just, you know, some maintenance-y type thing. Yeah. I, I felt the same way. She, t- she um, The vet recommended I get his neck x-rayed to make sure that there was no arthritis in it. And I was like, oh, my God. And she just kept reminding me, it's the same horse right. that you had before the x-ray. But what this x-ray will tell you is it will tell you why he is telling you what he's telling you. If he's telling you he's really, really stiff to the left, this x-ray can help us learn why he's saying that. Well, we discovered that he's not saying it because he's got arthritis in his neck. He's saying it because the vertebrae in his neck are actually abnormally formed which makes them less flexible one direction than the other. She does such a better job of explaining what it is, by the way. <laughs> right. They always do. <laughs> like, ah! um, yes, but apparently it's something that I wouldn't call it common, but she was like, I know exactly what this is. I've had other patients with it. This is what it looks like. She had a spine, of course, in her truck, and she pulled it out and showed it to me. Um, but same horses I had before, but now I can say, yes, you're stiff to the left. Asking you to be softer to the left is good because we need to keep the muscles and the soft tissues right. healthy, but it's never going to be any more flexible to the left to some degree because the bones can't go there. <laughs> and that that is the one thing I'm looking forward to is being able to um, kind of formulate more of a specific plan of, you know, athletic development for Simon that will complement the things that he doesn't have trouble with and, and help, you know, support the things that maybe where he's got some weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You, it give, it gives you that basis for a game plan. Yeah. Yeah. So other than that, um, just, yeah, lots of trail riding and getting out and about and 
just surviving the month of August. And, yeah. and I always at home in Montana, September starts cooling off. And I always think that's going to happen down here, but it really doesn't. Doesn't so. no. no. So for, for where you're at now, you are in the Fort Worth area of Texas, which is maybe in the center, slightly north of the center of Texas. It's considered North Texas. Yeah. Considered North Texas. What time Austin's of year does it genuinely start to cool off a little bit? For real. October, November. Yeah, not for a while yet. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it stays in the mid to high 80s pretty well through, definitely through September. And I can remember a few Thanksgivings of working outside in a t-shirt, which I found really disturbing considering <laughs> I drug my husband home to my, to, well, we were in North Dakota with my mom's family for Thanksgiving and I made him fry a turkey and it was about 15 degrees outside and snowing. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> so, you know, it's like you, the seasons you grow up with, I feel like, because Fort Worth kind of sort of has seasons, but obviously nothing like, you know, Mile City in, in Montana. And and I take for granted that I'm going to experience a season during a certain month. And, you know, our, our Halloween costumes were designed over to wear over snowsuits. Whereas <laughs> down here, it's like you could go jump in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Certain parts of the world just no. It's one season. It's what you get. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of seasons, fox hunting season proper in many parts of the country will start soon. Yes. Uh, the further north you go, the earlier the season starts. And yep. one of the things that you need to know when the season starts is what the names of all the different important people in the fox hunt are. And our term of the month is Master of Foxhound. Am I right? Yes, MFH. All right. So, and and this is a very old term, and I I didn't do I didn't do a ton of research on on the the origins of the term Master of Foxhounds because I you know I just I think it's fairly self explanatory, and I figured we'd just talk more about how the fact that every hunt has between one and as many as four or five masters of foxhounds. And depending on the hunt, different hunts select those people in different ways. Um, they may be appointed by existing masters. They may be voted on by a certain part of the membership. Um, they may be a private pack, which is a pack that's essentially owned by the masters or by someone in a master land ownership type role, you know, they might pick who their, their, their masters are. So there's a lot of different ways to become a master. But at the end of the day, when you go to a hunt, a master of foxhounds, those are the people who are leading the organization. They are the ones who maintain the relationships with landowners. They are the ones who guide the, the program of breeding or acquiring hounds. They are the people who approve or disapprove new members or, you know, have to have difficult conversations with members about exiting or whatever. They're, they're like the CEO and the HR department all and all one. of that in, rolled into between one and four people usually. So <clears throat> I don't, I have not experienced as many hunts that are set up this way as there used to be. At one time you had the master of Foxtowns but then you had the field master and they were two separate people. So the master of foxhounds is the CEO, but the field master was more closer to the director of operations, maybe? Well, in my experience, the field master is really a role in the field. It's, it's the field, like, so there's different fields of the hunt. There's first flight, second flight, third flight, hilltopper, and more or less than that. And each one of, and each of those is a flight. That's a group of riders. First flight runs and jumps with the hunts. And they used to call it field. Now they call it flight. So, some say flight, some say field. Yeah. So the feet, there's a field master in each one of those groups. Right. And so I've been in hunts where that's the same person throughout the season there's maybe I'd like at Bellmead. There's a couple people who will lead. They might interchange leading first field. There's a couple people who interchange leading second and third and so on. And a master 
really and truly could be both. Like a master of foxhounds might be a huntsman. They might lead the field. They might ride in the field. They might, you know, it's, it's kind of depends on the master and, and the relationship with the other people in the hunt. Like, you know, for example, it's, it's on the top of my mind, but Epp Wilson is a hunts is the huntsman for Belmede. And he's also a master of foxhounds. He's an MFH. So, so the, the role of master, like so many other things in the fox hunting universe, it depends on the individual club. It's going to vary just extent, a little bit. Yes. Yeah. But they're they're always the CEO, but right. How exactly. that, what that looks like is going to vary slightly because um, I know there at least used to be some hunts where the master of foxhounds didn't even ride all the time. Sometimes they weren't even right. on a horse. Sometimes they were very much the CEO. Right. Um, and then there were other hunt, hunt clubs where they have dual roles, like you said, master as well as huntsman. And then there are other clubs where you have multiple MFHs where they co-CEO amongst one another. Yeah. So, and, and I'm going to reiterate something that you remind us of on almost every episode, and I'm finally getting it. Despite the yeah. fact that most of us think of fox hunting as something with hard and fast rules that dare not be broken. There are an amazing number of things in yes. the fox hunting universe, which are really pretty fluid. Absolutely. And like, if you go read the, the if you go to the MFHA website, MFHA.com, um, the Masters of Foxhounds Association, and you read their guide about like, the role of the master and that they talk in the guide about if you, you have a hunt with multiple masters, they should have very finite separate roles, CEO, CFO, director of operations, something, you know, ah, something, yes. You know, so that if your huntsman's not a master, if your huntsman is truly like a, an employee of the hunt or something like that, you don't ever want somebody to have three bosses. No. And I, as a human resources professional, I will say that that is true always. Like having multiple bosses is just a recipe for disaster. So you want the huntsman to be reporting to one of the masters. If there's a disagreement, the masters talked amongst themselves. And then that one master that the huntsman reports to shares the message. Got it. There and that's not to say it always happens that way, but that's how it should happen. And that's how the MFHA advises but I, I think, you know, and masters generally, usually in the hunt field, regardless of where they're riding and regardless of gender, will wear a red coat. But that's not always true. I know a couple of women who have been masters that didn't feel it was appropriate for their them to wear red coats. And I don't fully understand that. And I don't know enough about the history of that red coat thing to speak to it. But um, somebody in a red coat is somebody in some generally a position of knowledge. <laughs> yes. Yes. That, that I think might be something that you could say is pretty darn consistent, consistent. throughout. Yep. If they're wearing a red coat, frequently called pink, uh, yes. you need to show them due respect at all times because they're one of, they're don't one ride of the in front people. of them. Yes. Don't flip them off. Don't. Do not speak <laughs> loudly in conversation near them. Yes. Um, if you're going to be yes. goo if you're going to be goofing off, don't be within earshot. Unless the person in the red coat is leading the goofing off. And I've well, then experienced it's okay. that too. <laughs> then it's okay. <laughs> as, as, especially if it's like the Halloween hunt or some one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <gasps> and I think it's important to understand, just like you reiterated, it's important to understand that the Master of Foxhounds role, the MFH role, isn't the same everywhere you go. So, you know, when you're, if, if you're like me, and you you like to you know travel around and go to different hunts. You should never assume that a master has certain specific roles or or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there you go. And the secretary is the person you ask before you get there. Yes. Yes. See, secret. I love the yes. secretary. That's my favorite member of the hunt staff <laughs> because he or she has all the answers before I get there. <laughs> yes. That's always the best person to get in touch with. Yes, I hate I hate having to ask questions once I get there because then I feel like a fool. There we go. Cool. Well, uh, speaking of asking questions, 
our sponsor of the show, the master of foxhounds. Is it master singular or master plural? Hmm. I think it's singular, master of foxhounds. Oh, I'm looking at the website. The masters, plural, of foxhounds, plural, Association of North America. There we go. That makes sense. There you go. See, I, I didn't know that until I went to the website, mfha.com. They just put up a, a sparkling new website. Yes. And, new branding um, and everything. Yeah, it's new branding. So it's really kind of fun because they've got how the MFHA started. They've got lots of history stuff there, but they've also got a lot of information for people who maybe aren't history buffs. Just right. practical stuff that give the sport a try. Yeah, and the website is a huge, it's a phenomenal resource for connections to hunts, to finding hunts in your area, to, there's all kinds of research about fox hunting in North America, and, you know, the etiquette, the rules, all the things, and how much gray area there is with those things sometimes. So, yeah, it is a great place to start if you're wanting to get involved and you don't know where to start. There you go. And for folks who are perhaps not equestrian inclined or for people who are equestrian inclined, but also have family members who are more generally outdoorsy, but not necessarily horsey, the MFHA is very involved with land conservation. That is conserving lands that stay open and available for outdoor pursuits so that's another way that family members of us equestrians can become involved in Absolutely. the art and sport of fox hunting. Yep. Yeah, we need to have somebody on sometime. We'll put this on the on the long list of guests to have coming up. Somebody from the conservation arm of the MFHA to talk a little bit about what they do and what their goals are. I think that'd be kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. We had, uh, I think it was Wacomico when they got the conservation award a couple of years ago, we had someone from there on, but yeah. um, yes, definitely. Cause that's the fox hunting community has done a lot to preserve open territory, especially in the Eastern part of the United States. Yes. And ha- coming from the Eastern part of the United States, in my point, in my opinion, that's critical because it's pretty much parking lot up there. Yes. Just saying. Yeah. And speaking of critical, I think we're getting to that critical time frame where we need to give our first guest a call. So let's get her on. Excellent. I am delighted to be talking today to Jennifer Hansen, the honorary huntsman for Woodbrook Hunt. Yes, Woodbrook Hunt Club in Washington State. And I always, I always like to try to get guests from hunts that are not in your stereotypical hunting area of the United States. So I'm super excited to finally get y'all on here. And you also are the oldest hunt west of the Mississippi, right? That's true. We are. So tell us a little bit about where you are in Washington state and about Woodbrook Hunt Club. Okay, tell you about Woodbrook. So we are located in Lakewood, Washington, which is about a short distance south of Tacoma proper and an hour south of the city of Seattle. Uh, We are two hours from Portland and we are the only hunt club located in the state of Washington and you have to travel uh, either up to Canada or 14 hours south to Reno or 14 hours west to uh, Montana to find another hunt club to ride with. So that, I Um, guess Oregon and Idaho don't have any hunt clubs. Correct. That's That's right. Yeah. Yep. And the hunting here, I talked a little about our hunt country, which was originally Fort Lewis. uh, But a, a few years ago, I have probably 10 now, uh, Fort Lewis and McCord Air Force Base, the Army Base and the Air Force Base merged to become Joint Base Lewis-McCord, and, and that's now our hunt country. Uh, we've hunted on the, the territory continuously since about 1910 with just a couple of breaks um, during the World Wars. Oh, Wow. Uh, Our clubhouse um, has quite a historic uh, architecture, and the building itself was moved from 
our, its first location to its current location, both here in Lakewood, but when Interstate 5 went in in 1957, I believe, uh, we had to move the clubhouse because it would have been on one side separated. The, the highway would have separated the, ba- the clubhouse from the, uh, our hunt country. So they kind of picked it up so and they, moved it. Yep, they did. Oh, that's funny. They picked funny. it up and moved it. And um, I, I believe it was hunt members or masters that purchased the land. Um, our clubhouse, five acres that is home to our clubhouse, our kennel, uh, a barn that keeps our staff horses, houses our staff horses. And then our kennelman has a small cottage on the property also. Well, that's delightful. So I've hunted a few times with the Fort Leavenworth hunt in Kansas, and they are affiliated specifically with the military, although I don't think they hunt on military land. And I feel like y'all are kind of the opposite to where you're not necessarily hunt affiliate or military affiliated, but you hunt on military land. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, that is, that is correct. Um, but it is, it's interesting over the years we've shared a lot of stories with Fort Leavenworth because there are, I do believe they have some fixtures that may be on military land, but not all of them. And they are definitely more military affiliated than we are. Yes, for sure. Like I know uh, at least a couple of their masters are, are retired military and a lot of their membership is military. And so I just, I think that's fascinating that, does Woodbrook have, you know, does do members of the military get any like priority or do they does anyone from the military hunt with y'all? Yes, we encourage that. We definitely encourage that. Um we we have uh had even generals that have hunted with us and been members of the club. We do offer a military membership. Um and we you know definitely encourage the anyone who's here for a short or a long time. Um, interesting, we've had quite a few. Angela Murray, who's now a master at Red Rock, she hunted with us and was a member here um, when her ex-husband was stationed here at Fort Lewis. Oh, cool. Um, and we've, yeah, and a lot of, actually a lot of, especially rangers, um, their training, they'll go from here to Fort Leavenworth because there's, they have a, a specific school that's there in Kansas. So we've had quite a few that people that will be stationed, you know, military will be stationed here and then they'll go on and hunt with Fort Leavenworth after. I think that's kind of neat because it, you know, hopefully that keeps people kind of engaged in the hunting world and realize that it's, you know, that you can go different places in the country and still do it. So that's, I love that. And I think our hunt country is quite unique. It's very different. The trees, I mean, it's, I've, I've been lucky enough to hunt a lot of places now and it's, um, uh, it was described, Andrew Barkley just came to hunt with us and he said, this is like thousands of acres of cover. <laughs> it's just, you know, there's, there we have, it's a big country, but it's, uh, it's very dense. We have a few prairies. But for the most part, it's just really old, big trees, a mix of dug firs. But oak is actually what's historic here. Um, we hmm. have beautiful Gary oak and a lot of wetlands. A lot of, um, we hunt around quite a few. Uh, they're called, some of them are called marshes and some of them are called lakes. But it's, it's quite, it's unique. I have yet to come across hunt country that reminds me of ours. So what kind of hound and what kind of horse is successful there? Yeah, so our hounds, uh, I'm just entering my seventh season as Huntsman, and I have tried a little bit of everything. Uh, The crossbred hounds seem to work really well for us. Um, I I don't know if we mentioned to everybody, but we are a drag hunt. Okay. uh, So that has its challenges as well, just in finding the right hound for our country and for that sport. Um, I've I've drafted quite a few hounds. We're a small pack, which is 10 couple because you just don't need as big a pack when you're drag hunting. Right. And yeah, and I have had really good luck. Uh, huntsmen have been very, very generous in sharing hounds with me. Uh, and Mill Creek, Brenda uh, Yost there, the huntsman, she, I've had wonderful success with drafts from that hunt. Um, what part of the country are they in? 
they're in Chicago. Okay. Uh, or outside Chicago. They're in Illinois, outside Chicago. And right. what's interesting for them is that they have a very tight country and it, her hounds are just, they're, they're, it, it works. She's worked really hard to have really nice voice in her pack. Uh, and that's something that we were definitely lacking here and have tried to improve upon. So. Cause it's easier to help. hear them cause you can't see them due to the cover. Right. You got it. You got okay. it. Yeah. 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 Uh, so a crossbred hound, although I am I'm trying, we have a couple of drafts from Sandy Inez, which has a very strong French influence. Oh, I'm going to okay. give that a try, but I have, I have no idea how it's going to work. Yet. <laughs> They're still puppies. Um, and we had a little, th- there were some really good English hounds that we drafted from Los Altos. That's a hunt in California that unfortunately disbanded a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. but, uh, I, they, I've had the best luck with, with really the crossbred hounds. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's really true of a lot of the hunts west of the Mississippi is that, you know, the hunt, the hound that's going to do well in your wooded territory is not the same hound that's going to do well at um, Casa Drone in dry New Mexico as is going to do well in hot, humid, sticky Texas where I am. So I think it's I love to talk to huntsmen that have that, you know, really varied territory because I think you really have to work towards finding that right hound for your territory. And I don't think people really realize that so much that you don't just go drop some foxhound somewhere and off they go. Like it, you really have to breed and, and purposefully, you know, find hounds that can hunt in that, that climate. It's very true. And the, I've interesting, I, I wouldn't have, you learn so much through the experience of just trial and watching. Uh, I never would have guessed that I would need big hounds. But the big hounds really get through the thick country. Their their weight helps them. The yeah. little hounds are like feathers and they just, they give up. They can't, they just don't get through it. And they'll wait out and wait and let the big hounds do the work. So I've really tried to keep size in my pack. Uh, and that was something, if you'd asked me going into this, I never would have guessed. Oh, I think that's fascinating. So what kind of horses do most of your members ride? Is Because I know some hunts, you know, they need a bigger, heavier horse. Some horses or some hunts need a lighter horse with more endurance. And, and what works well in Woodbrook? Yeah, well, I am a thoroughbred lover through and through. And um, that said, I also have a Dutch warm blood mare who's been a wonderful horse for me. Uh, so most of our staff is mounted on on thoroughbreds. Uh, we have a, but our field, uh, I would say, first flight is a good number of thoroughbreds. But then quickly you move down to a little heavier horse. A lot of smaller horses. We have a lot of um, like mid size. I'd say fifteen to fourteen two to fifteen two is a really oh, nice. popular size in our hunt. Um, and I think again in the wooded areas, it's it can be harder to get around on a really big horse. Yes. Uh, so even that smaller, you know, my thoroughbreds are all right around between 15.3 and 16.1. Um, but that's, so you don't need a ton of blood. We don't have a lot of hill. We cover a lot of ground. Okay. So you, um, yeah. About how, like, are your hunt, like three or four hours? Is that about two or three hours? Yep. Yep. On Tuesdays, we usually go out for about two hours. And then on Saturdays, we're out for between three and five hours. Okay. So a little, you need a horse that's, that has got some gas in the tank. Yeah, but not, I mean, there's really, it's interesting. We have, we have a mule that hunts with us. Oh, I love it. Yeah, we have Buckshot. He's quite actually famous. He has his own Facebook page. Uh, So we have some Mustangs that hunt with us. Um, it's really, you know, there's a spot for just about every horse, I would say. I um, love that. But it's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> Red Rock Linda is currently getting into my lap because there's thunder. I, oh. I have a retired hound from Angela. Oh. <laughs> oh, but I, and I love to hear that though, where it's, you know, cause there are some hunts that really go and you really need a, you know, an athletic, you know, thoroughbred type horse. So I love that, that y'all are, um, 
accessible to, because a lot of our listeners are not necessarily fox hunters and a lot of our listeners are people who want to try hunting. And hopefully we have quite a few folks in the Pacific Northwest. So hopefully you'll be, you know, some folks will reach out to you. Well, we're a welcoming crew. We have, I, we have a field or a spot for just about every horse or, and every rider. So it's, it's pretty fun. Our masters work really hard to make sure that our field masters are all prepared to, you know, lead the various fields. We generally have four fields. Uh, okay. And, that's even if it's smallish groups, you know, just it can vary how many people are out hunting. But yeah, we really they do a super job of of trying to keep the the flight size fun and safe for everybody. So, what does your season look like? When will you start autumn hunting, and when does your formal season begin? Yeah, well, we are super dry this year, so normally yes. I start hound exercising next week. But I think I'm going to have to go out on bicycles for the first bit because it's just going to be too dusty with the horses um, because we're so dry this year. So normally yeah. we start going out. Yeah, normally we start going out mounted the first of August and then uh, about six weeks in. So second week of September or so, we'll start um, our early hunting and um, then our hunt, our opening day had historically has been the first weekend in October. Um, but okay, so kind of years, early. We've moved it back. We've moved it back to a little bit later. Um, so have opened the third or fourth week in October. So I don't know. The masters haven't decided quite yet this year when they're going to, our formal season will open. And then we hunt until the last weekend of March or the first weekend of April. Yeah. So that's, yeah, you guys start pretty early. That's awesome. Um, down here in Texas, it's just a little hot still in October. So most of our hunts open the first or second weekend of November and then go to mid to late March. So, Yeah, we are lucky. We get a really nice fall here. And uh, September, we still have to go out quite early. That's really, but once we get into October, um, we generally are into really nice hunting weather. Fabulous. And and how big are your most of your fields usually, like on a weekend day? On a weekend day, I would generally between 40 and, and 60 people. Um, and then on our big, like opening day, Blessing of the Hounds, we'll have 75 to 85 or 90. We've oh, had awesome. as many as 100. So it can be a big, a big turnout for those days. You know, I think you just think about people come from quite a distance because this is their only, it's the only spot for them to hunt in the area. Well, and it sounds like your, ter- your territory sounds beautiful. So I imagine it's pretty attractive for multiple reasons. I love it. I think it is. <laughs> I think it seems that everybody likes to come and enjoy it. And it's, it has a lot of variation too. It's interesting. I talk about the trees, but we also have just some beautiful open prairies. Yeah, that, I, I've spent a fair, I'm originally from eastern Montana, and I've spent a fair amount of time around the Seattle-Tacoma area, and I think it's lovely. So I might just have to make my way out there and hunt with y'all sometime. We'd love it. Excellent. So if listeners want to get in touch with Woodbrook and are interested in coming out and hanging out or hunting with y'all, how would they find you? We have uh, three different ways I can think of right off the top of my head, but woodbrickhuntclub.com is our website. Uh, we have a very active Woodbrook Hunt Club Facebook page and an even more active Woodbrook Hunt Club Instagram. Excellent. Um, so those would be three ways, and everybody's good about answering, uh, you know, or sending just a direct email. It's woodbrookhuntclub at gmail.com. And somebody will get back to you with everything you need to know to join us. Delightful. Well, thank you for joining us. Well, what a great conversation with Jennifer Hansen, who comes and works with a hunt that is pretty significant in size, both in the number of members who come out to ride as well as country that they ride in. Yeah, versus our next guest, Sean Cully, coming up next, is going to be a slightly different hunt club experience. So that's kind of it's kind of fun. We're going to have an interesting contrast today. Well, and it's it's you know East Coast West Coast, and that's I think it's the interesting thing about fox hunting is 
you know, you, you go to a hunter show or you go to a reining show or you go to a barrel race and it's kind of the same wherever you go. Fox hunting is really not like that. It, it, you're right. It is very regional, very individual. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the hounds are bred differently. They're trained, you know, they're trained the same. They're raised somewhat differently. Um, you're looking for different traits in a hound and maybe a hot horse too. So that's one of the things that I really love about fox hunting is just the the variation and the acclimatization each hunt does to where it exists. Yeah. So let's get uh, Sean on the phone and find out what's going on with uh, the Rose Tree Blue Mountain Club. Excellent. I'm delighted today to be talking to Sean Culley of the Rose Tree Blue Mountain Hounds. And Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are a master as well as the huntsman, right? That's correct. Yep. Master and huntsman um, since um, 1999. And what part of the world are you in? <laughs> right. We're we're um, in central Pennsylvania, um, kind of um, the Pennsylvania epicenter of fox hunting. So is the weather perfectly delightful right now or is it insufferably hot? I haven't spent much time in that part of the U.S. Sure. Um, now, this time of year, it's pretty hot and pretty humid, uh, but we start to get cool mornings um, in early August. And as we transition into we get lots of cool mornings and it's conducive for our uh, start of our season, which is starts on August 1st. So with are you walking out hounds or what what are your summer activities prior to autumn hunting starting sure yeah yeah every year um we, we raise around six couple of puppies um to enter for the autumn season um but as soon as season ends um at the end of march um we're walking out these puppies and getting them ready for this time um and uh, that's what they've done they've mastered the walking out process um ready to start their season do you get lots of members to come out during the summer to walk walk puppies, or is it kind of more of a staff and and? It's yeah, we're a, it's a staff only. We're um, members are invited to come every day if they'd like to, um, but our our hunt and membership is scattered out over a, oh, I don't know, you'd, maybe it's a seventy mile radius um, of our place. But it's pretty far, and, and it's not easy for people to travel for a, a, just a day's walk out. So we don't get many visitors occasionally. Um, but it's just, it's, it's me and our whipper in Jacob. Oh, very nice. Well, that's nice summer mornings then out with hounds. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful time. It's the best part of the day after they're been cleaned out and fed. Um, it's time to walk and, and we spend about an hour walking each day. It's really nice. And I, I, d- I did a little sleuthing and research. I'm looking at your website and I think that this is something. So we talked about this before that a lot of our listeners are, not really familiar with fox hunting or are not close to any fox hunts, but Rose Tree Blue Mountain is actually two hunts that merged a few years ago. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Blue Mountain, as I said earlier, started in 1999. And of all things, we were a foot pack. We, we hunted um, our hounds on foot, um, transitioned over um, as, as Blue Mountain still to a mounted pack uh, after 10 years of doing that. Um, that was... Um, um, can't think of it. that would be 2009. Um, and we hunted approximately six years as Blue Mountain. Um, and then a great opportunity came up in 2014, 15 timeframe when the, the current, well, the, 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 at the time, current masters of Rose Tree were ready for a change. Um, and we're looking for someone to take over. And, uh, I stepped in and was able to take over the hounds in the country and we, you know, and at that time was the merger with, with Rose Tree. And we picked up oh, additional um, maybe five or six fixtures to hunt in southern York County, um, where where the red foxes um, are predominant quarry. And Rose Tree is a, is a very old hunt, right? Yeah, yeah. 1859 is when they started. Um, I've, I've heard it said that maybe there, it's the second oldest subscription pack in the United States, or maybe the oldest, I'm not sure, but um, this August we'll, we'll start with our 162nd season. So that's, that's some history there. Yeah, that's, and I, I kind of like the the newer pack merging with an older pack. I think that that, that has to make for a unique, um, and, and just a unique ambiance. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool because the um, the Blue Mountain was was all new territory that I had opened myself. 
um, that had never been hunted with a mounted pack. Um, so we, 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 we continue on those, those blue mountain fixtures, but we, then we have the, the more historic rose tree country that blended in with all of it. And, um, it gives, um, it's just, a, it's a nice, nice blend of, uh, fixtures and, and it also covers a, a wide area, which allows, um, members from different areas to partake in hunts closer to their home, um, you know, and things such as that. So what, I, looking at pictures, your most of your hounds are black and tan. So what did you? What breed did you have, and what do you have? Right, um, my foot hunting days, um, hounds were predominantly um, what's what's more common with the, the foot packs, which would be Walker hounds and um, July hounds. So the July hounds are predominantly black and tan, and uh, they seem to, to mold best. July's did with the mounted hunting that I that I switched over to about 15 years ago. Um, so July hounds um, have been bred on, um, crossed with um, the more common, what I would call mounted crossbred hounds. And we've kept that July blood alive. Um, it's been watered down substantially now, but um, that's, and I've always just favored the black and tan. So when we're keeping puppies back, I, I've always favored the little black and tan puppies for some reason. And that's why we I, have so many of those. I can't say that I blame you. They're pretty striking. And, yeah. I know there's another hunt out there. I want to, does Andrews bridge, do they have black and tan hounds? Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the big historic thing. They're the, um, um, Penn Meridale black and tans that they're so famous for uh, our hounds. Um, again, equally black and tan, but we're, we're a crossbred pack, um, slightly different. Okay. Hounds. All right. Yep. So do you show your hounds at all in the hound shows or do you focus mostly just on hunting and staying um, well, there. we we do a bit with yeah you know, we do a bit with the hound shows. The the Bryn Mawr Hound Show is right in our home territory, so we go to that every year. And we've um, Virginia visited Virginia um, the last couple times and and uh, done some showing there, and it's it's a lot of fun. Delightful. So, what is your autumn hunting like? Do you get pretty good turnouts? Um, and how long is your autumn hunting season before you start formal? Right. So. Um, yeah, August 1st is when our autumn hunting starts every year. Um, we start off, um, well, we're, we're a three-day-a-week pack, um, and, and our days are three to four hours on average. Our, 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 our oh, um, nice. early season is, is yeah, they're, they're good long days um, as long as the temperatures are, are holding. Um, our turnout is, um, is good on the weekends. Um, you know, we, we'll have um, 15 riders on average for a weekend. Um, weekdays, uh, yeah, 10 riders. So it's a small club that we have. Um, but, um, that's, that's, that's the average that we see, um, this time of year. Um, our season, again, as it starts in August, we carry through in our actual formal season where attire changes and so forth doesn't start until the first week of November, typically. Um, and then we'll carry on through the rest of the winter into the end of March with the formal season. Do you have to break? during the cold part of the winter? I, I know John Tabachka came on back when he was um, in Pennsylvania, and I know they kind of quit for a while. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, John was out there in the western part of Pennsylvania, and their winters are a little tougher. Um, where we're at, we typically um, go all winter long. Um, maybe we might miss, on average, one to three days per, you know, an entire season. We don't miss much due to weather. We do hunt in some snow and some uh, not great weather. <laughs> in, yeah, yeah. In, in addition to what we do in Pennsylvania, we also have uh, territory that we just began hunting in South Carolina last season. So if we would have a, a substantial bit of um, snow or, or get shut out in the future, we can retreat to our South Carolina territory and, and hunt, hunt down there. Well, that sounds lovely. Do you do do you have members down in that part of the country, or do your members travel down there, or is it just a smaller contingent, or how does that work out? Right. Yeah, the South Carolina thing is fairly new. Um, we acquired a farm in territory just in the last 12 months, um, and we hunted it for the first time last year. Um, and we hunted um, simultaneous with that hunt in Pennsylvania. We hunted three days a week in the Aiken area all last winter um, using uh, a guest huntsman. Um, and and um, it, I, I remained in Pennsylvania for the most part, but I was able to come down a few times and visit. We had some members come down 
from Pennsylvania each time I came, um, but predominantly, um, as you know, the Aiken area is full of horse folks, and oh yes, and we had, you know, we had lots of lots of folks that were interested in what we did down here. So it was super fun, and uh, we'll start our second season in Aiken uh, this coming January. Oh, that's so fun! Did you do? Do you ever do joint meets when you're there with anyone? Um. Yeah, the first season last year in Aiken, we didn't have any guest hunts come hunt our territory as we were learning the fixtures and so forth. Right. Um, but we we did travel and we hunted with Aiken a few days um, at some of their live fixtures um, last winter. Um, I think this winter, with um, the territory set up a little better and, and we know the lay of the land, we'll um, we'll have some of our our friends from down south come visit us. Hopefully, that sounds delightful. I I made the trip to Bellmead in, I think I was there in February. And so we spent a little time in Aiken. We didn't hunt in Aiken, but it's just, there's, okay. you know, there's so many hunts that are not terribly far away from one another in that part of the world. Yeah. 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 There's, there's quite a few right in the Aiken area and uh, certainly Bellmead will be one of our friends that we invite over to hunt with us. This so coming fun. season. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Sean, it was a delight to talk to you. And if anyone's interest is piqued and they want to see about going and hunting with uh, Rose Tree Blue Mountain, where is the best place for them to go to find more information? Well, I'd say the Rose Tree Blue Mountain website would be the main portal for, for connecting with us, um, as well as um, uh, my wife, one of the joint masters, maintains a, a nice Facebook page for the hunt and shows all kinds of fun stuff there. Excellent. Well, and we'll, we will put a link to the website in the show notes to make it extra easy for folks. Well, thank you for joining us and we wish you a wonderful season. And I think that about wraps it up for today. We got a little of everything in today's show. Uh, a lot of fun. And thank you so much for listening to the monthly fox hunting episode on Horses in the Morning. And you can find our wonderful host, Tara, on Instagram. Her Instagram handle is tntibbets. Or, you, if you're not an Instagrammer, if you want to get a hold of T- Tara, you can always drop me an email here at Horse Radio Network, and I will forward it to Tara. I'm Jennifer at HorseRadioNetwork.com, so I can do that for you. And today's show notes can be found where, Tara? At HorsesInTheMorning.com. And all the links we talked about are there with the show notes. You can also follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. You can have all the other Horse Radio Network shows as well as Horses in the Morning with you wherever you go with the free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to your app store and search for Horse Radio Network. Many thanks to our sponsor, the Masters of Foxhound Association, MFHA.com. Good night. <laughs>